Leaders come in all different shapes, sizes, and styles. There is not a one-size-fits-all solution to leadership. Our goal is to connect with those who are in the trenches each day, leading themselves and leading others, to learn about their unique style, and to provide our listeners with inspiration to lead. Welcome to the Lead with Empower podcast. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Lead with Empower podcast. We have a wonderful human being on the other side of the Zoom screen, I guess, is, is what we'll call it these days. Uh, very excited for our guest today, who is Dr. Lisa Beth Hill. And Lisa's here. She's going to lead with Empower for the next chunk of time. Dr. Hill has over 20 years of teaching and administrative experience, primarily at the post-secondary level, but we'll get into the nitty-gritty details of that throughout. She is married to a wonderful person, attorney George Lyons, Jr., out of Rockmount, North Carolina, and she is currently serving as the chair of the Department of History at Hamden Hall Country Day School in Hamden, Connecticut. Lisa, how are you? Thanks for coming on today with us. I'm fine. How are you, Dan? I'm doing wonder better now. It's the oh, end of the great. day, and I'm having a good conversation here. So, Thank you. I'm honored to be asked to be on this podcast. It's, uh, it's very, I'm very excited. Um, my uh, wife, Kelly, and Lisa work together at Hamden Hall. And as I was putting together kind of lists of people to reach out to, Kelly was like, you have to talk to Lisa. She's going to be great. And I agreed immediately. And the yeah. day is here. Very excited for it. <laughs> Before we get into anything, how are you? How is your family doing? We're obviously in the middle of a uh, an interesting time to say the least. Are, are health good? Everybody doing well so far? We are well. Thanks for asking. In fact, um, every other week now we have a Zoom meeting with the family. Yep. So that's been nice because I get to see people, which, you know, I'm not particularly happy with Zooming everything, but it does serve a wonderful purpose and that's that's important. So thanks for asking. I hope oh, you're very welcome. I'm glad, and glad to hear. Yeah, it's... Uh, <laughs> You know, it's interesting, obviously, to say the least, and uh, uh, definitely a challenge, which brings us to the next question. You're in the middle of some distance learning. Yeah. With, uh, with the students from Hamden Hall. How has that gone? And we'll look at it from two vantage, uh, vantage points for you, and then how do you feel it's gone for your students uh, thus far? Well, I think it's gone well overall because I have actually been doing distance learning for quite a while at different institutions. Okay. And so for me, it wasn't a really crazy transition. I know for many of my colleagues, it totally was. And it's, you know, it was kind of scary. Um, it was just a matter of finding the platform and doing it. So I have to admit that I wasn't um, afraid. Yeah. And I think that helped with my students because they kind of knew I knew what I was doing. And from some of the evaluations, they're saying that they felt engaged. Um, Part of the, I guess the biggest problem when you're trying to show a video or play some music, there's kind of this lag. And so, you know, the, the lips are moving and then it kind of comes later. And, and so for some of the kids, it was just a little too distracting. And I, I tried very hard to actually um, like sync things with Camtasia and yep. Handbrake and just try to chunk things out so that it was a little bit better, you know. So anyway, I it just really stretched every technological, you know, ability that I had, but I think we're, we, we made out. Okay. I'm That's enjoying great. it. Yeah. I just wish I could see them obviously. You know. Now when you're on live with them, mm -hmm. are they on camera with you as well? Or do, do a lot of them go with like, or do you force them to go on camera so you can see if they're paying attention? I prefer attention? that they do. Yeah. But I have some who try to ghost and so I call them out. You know, and so at least I can hear the voice, but it's sort of, you know, they think if the room is dark and all that, you know, it's like, <laughs> and I was like, I can still see an eyeball, you know. <laughs> students never realize that the adults are all smarter than the adults look, you know. <laughs> yeah, because we kind of did that before they did. So. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Any idea you're trying, I've tried at least once before. Yeah, so, yeah. or I invented it, right? It's one of those, right? <laughs> And do you feel it's going well for your, obviously it's hard to know because you don't really get to talk to them in person. Do you yeah. feel from the student's vantage point, it's going okay for them? So I know you mentioned they've been 
you felt like they've been engaged. Um, mm-hmm. Are they they're doing okay with it? You think? Yeah, in my classes now, okay. I, I can't speak for anyone else, but um, I'm kind of goofy, and so I haven't changed. You know, so it's like I think they understand that I'm still the same person, yep. and I'll still make a bad joke or I'll make them sing with me, whatever it is. You know, I, I try to make sure that. I can transfer what it is that I did face to face as much as I can online. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So they expect me to do something kind of goofy. That's, you know. <laughs> and, and you mentioned uh, singing along with you, which isn't, this isn't on the, uh, the question sheet right here, but I think the first, <laughs> the first time we met in the fall of 2019, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we got into a little, like what song gets stuck in your head and, it was it was an interesting kind. I knew right away. I'm like, this, I like Lisa a lot. We, we both we both laughed, and I forget. I know I was Disco Inferno, and I forget what song was on in your head that day. I'm trying to think. I do remember that, but then when you said Disco Inferno, that got stuck in my head. So yep. I it kicked my other one out <laughs> and replaced it with yours. <laughs> And it's still there. We just shared a couple text there. messages and it was burn, baby, burn. Right, so. Exactly. So, so thanks for that, Dan. That was like <laughs> the gift that keeps giving. <laughs> right? It's like a blessing <laughs> and a curse. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, now I can't remember. You're right. <laughs> it'll, so it'll come back at, you know, you'll be lying, at be lying in bed tonight and it'll come back and you won't be able to sleep because exactly. the song's not playing in your head. I, po- I apologize in advance. Please do. Thank you. <laughs> so I, you said we have some information. I uh, was on the Hampton Hall website and I found a quote from when you first started at Hampton Hall and I love it. I think oh. it's great. And uh, I try to emphasize to my students that humans are flawed beings and anything we build must have flaws. However, everything that is flawed is not ugly. Mm-hmm. There is a lot in that quote or statement to, I guess, unpack or talk through, but I, I think it's awesome. I think it's wonderful. Thank you. This was right, right at the time you started at Hamden Hall, I believe. Mm-hmm. What is it about that quote that resonates with you? Because I teach history, you know, humans did a lot of bad and wrong things. <laughs> <laughs> and I also try to get my students to not just understand oh, this happened and, you know, it was horrible, which it was, but to understand that within the human spirit, there is some sense of redemption. So for a lot of the wrongs, there were some people trying to correct it. So even if the correction was flawed, there was this sense of responsibility and a sense of, you know, common humanity that they try to work with. And so you're always going to have, you know, a bad seed in every group. I don't care who you who you pick. Yep. There's going to be a couple, you know, they're just kind of rotten to the core for whatever reason. And I don't think that it's always an, a bad thing when people make mistakes. And, you know, you've heard all your life, if you make a mistake, you learn from it. And I know that sounds really hackneyed and trite, but it's true. Yep. It's when you don't learn from it that we have, you know, the major issues. And so what I keep trying to tell them is, yeah, you can repeat history if you don't know it, but what you're repeating actually is some of that human instinct, the human flaws that are just sort of genetically programmed that you don't have any control over whether you knew about enslavement or the Holocaust or whatever, but you still feel a certain way. You have to understand that there is a connection there that you don't always have to know historically, but just kind of know it intrinsically. One of the things that stuck out to me for after reading the quote, and this was literally minutes before we started today, it just, it just oh. I, I happened to check on the website there. We get, I get to work with a lot of different high school age, college age, and, and younger, and it's, it's not the same students at the same school over the course of a school year. It's a pocket on this day from this part of the state. And then, Mm -hmm. uh, but there's recurring themes regardless of uh, high school, great, you know, regardless of grade level or regardless of, are they coming from an affluent area or are they coming from a more, you know, uh, an an area that struggles a little bit, you know, um, financially that 
I see a lot of times students are so afraid to push themselves to a point where there's a chance of failure, right? They, you know, doing things where mm -hmm. it's safe, right? Safe the zone. worst case scenario is I'm going to be like, okay. Um, and they sometimes don't try those things that can really, you know, maybe, maybe you'll fail, but maybe your true potential will shine. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I think that's a common, common theme in with, with some of the students that I've seen over the years. And I think that message that it's okay to be flawed. It's okay to mess up. It's not ugly. It's not the end of the world. It's part of the process. Yeah. Yeah. So you're in at Hamden Hall Country Day School now in Hamden, Connecticut. Where are you originally from, Lisa? Um, New Haven, Connecticut, down the street. <laughs> or Westville, next door to West Rock Mountain. <laughs> <laughs> But you, so you went from the uh, New Haven, Connecticut to the University of Mary, you're a Terp. I am a Terp, <laughs> yes indeed, fear the turtle, yeah. <laughs> give, uh, if you can, and take, take some time, but uh, if you can give our listeners a little background as to kind of what you were into, what you were involved uh, with as uh, middle school or high school, and what led, led you to the University of Maryland for your studies. Okay, well, um, my most of my family is was here i'm, I'm losing them unfortunately because they're getting older but my dad got a job in dc um right after the night well the mid 70s late 70s and we okay. moved to maryland and so i actually finished i started here at um, st martin de Porres, and then i went to school in montgomery county which was you know like the the best school system with fairfax county always yep. kind of you know so Maryland, um, it's funny because I actually didn't think about the University of Maryland. I was thinking about American University or University of Rochester, but my counselor said I was a finalist for a national merit scholarship that I didn't even know. And so I said, well, let me just, <laughs> maybe I ought to apply. <laughs> that was like a good thing to do, you know? <laughs> and so that's really, I hate to say it was, you know, careful studying and saying, oh, no, it was because, you know, there was some potential money. And, um, and a lot of my friends actually went to Maryland. So I got to see people I knew, but there were 40,000 of us at the time. I know it's probably 50 something now, yeah. but I like big places. Um, I like to find my way you know, out of kind of chaos. And to me, that was perfect. You know, you'd have 400 majors and, you know, they're like 200 acres of, of land and, you know, just like, there's just stuff everywhere. And you have to figure out who are you going to be and what are you going to do in all of that? Yep. And so it was a challenge to me to really kind of find my niche. And what I found was that I, I had a lot of, um, gosh, I had so many ideas. I was, a food science major at one point. I was pre-med at one point. I, um, oh wait, what was I? Yeah, uh, and then I couldn't decide between American studies and history and French. And so I, I got, you know, kind of like, okay, let me just settle on something here because <laughs> I think I have enough credits, you know, to get five degrees. So um, that's, I, there was just a lot to do. And then I um, was involved in my sorority and I was part of a, um, a larger group that actually was um, sort of interracial. It was different organizations that were working under an umbrella that the president at the time, Dr. Um, oh gosh, what was his name? I loved him. Okay, the guy I really loved, can't remember his name. Um, he, was, <laughs> he had this notion that there shouldn't be all these silos even among the students. And that's pretty big, you know, that's an ambitious thing, 40,000 kids and probably 20,000 are, are active in something. And so yep. it was, and I was always trying to be a part of those projects just because I thought it was, you know, just kind of fun to meet different people. And I'm not one to really like to kind of stay in one little group yep. because I think that you just don't learn enough if you don't push yourself, like you were saying, you know, go outside and, you know, and, and fail if you have to, but at least you know what's out there, right? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think you're 100% correct. You, you said something earlier on that you, you loved a certain amount of chaos. So you can 
I, I, to me, it's, a, it's that sense of adventure, right? Can, you know, yeah. there's this unknown or these bunch of unknowns and I, I need to try to find my, you know, way through it, na- navigate my way through it. Mm-hmm. That's, I don't know if that's, I don't know if it's common or I don't, it's definitely not something that everybody has. Some people like their, their yeah. very rigid path. Was there something about kind of growing up that, that I think it's a skill, right? I think it's a skill mm-hmm. to, to be put into a situation where there's a lot of unknowns and you have the wherewithal and the, the, the courage to kind of navigate through it. Is, mm-hmm. If you look back now as an adult, would you say, oh, these experiences as a child really shaped my viewpoint of, yeah, I can survive in this big environment that is hectic and crazy and chaotic. I would have to say, yes, um, we traveled a lot when I was little, my, not military, but yeah. summers, uh, my parents, we always went to Lake George, and then we would go to maybe another beach or whatever. So we were always moving, which was great. And it gave me an appreciation for other people. I mean, when I was little, I didn't understand accents. And so I started listening carefully because when we first visited my dad's people in South Carolina, we were like, what are they talking about? You know, because here we are, you know, New England and the deep South, you're like, oh boy. Yeah. And then I came to really love hearing the cadence. And then, you know, I tried to mimic it and it was just, so I, I found that in this country in particular, there are several countries. I mean, every single place is so different from the other which is why I, I think people kind of waste their time sometimes not traveling within the country because everybody wants to leave. You're like, but you don't understand what we have. Yep. Um, that was part of it. And, and reading my family, we are all avid readers. And every Friday, my mom used to take my sister and I down to the um, public library right on Temple Street. And we would pick a book and then we'd race to see who could finish because whoever finished their book first got to choose where we had dinner on Friday night. Uh, and years and years and years ago, where Wooden Tap is now in Hamden, that used to be a Howard Johnson's. And, you know, every kid thinks that McDonald's and Howard Johnson's is like the best. <laughs> you know, so we were kind of cheap dates as we, <laughs> when I think about it, geez, they got off really well. It's <laughs> just because we could get the kids meal, you know. So <laughs> Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> and I think kids ate free on Friday now that I think about it. Wow. Jeez, mom. Okay, well, anyway. <laughs> well, it gets back to the point. The adults are smarter than the... the <laughs> <laughs> I'm not that. They knew what they were doing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So my parents also raised us to say, okay, you all are girls, but you're going to have to change tires. You're going to have to make your own flight, book your own flights. I mean, so we were encouraged to do a lot of things on our own. Um, at an early age, I used to fly to New Haven, when, even after we moved to Maryland, every summer I would, you know, get on a plane by myself. Back then you could do that. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, my grandparents would come and get me at Tweed and, you know, so, or at JFK or wherever. But the thing is, you know, I, it was not a big deal to me to, to fly or hop a train or whatever. So I think that's part of it, that it never gave it a second thought, um, you know, to, to go get out there and do something. It's great. So, it, and the reason why I asked is, you know, when you talk about, you know, build, building leadership skills or, or, or becoming a stronger student or becoming a better athlete, it's not like a magical wake up one day and I want to be a basketball player. I'm going to be six foot six and be able to run and jump out of the gym. It's mm-hmm. a bunch of experiences that shape what you can, what you can do or what you're comfortable doing. And I was just curious because, you know, not a lot of people can step foot into a 40,000 person Great campus. A young, my youngest brother spent some time down there in the two oh. thousands at some point. Yep. Uh-huh. Um, but that can that's intimidating for a lot of people. And to say that I wanted that, I like that. It was interesting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a liberal studies bachelor's mm-hmm. from Maryland, mm-hmm. and then you weren't done with school after that. Oh, I knew I wouldn't. Be. <laughs> I I loved school. I mean, my students laugh at me because I tell them. I was actually kicked out of daycare, okay? That's the big story. <laughs> and, okay, so that wasn't a great beginning, but once I was readmitted, <laughs> I really loved it. <laughs> so good, Kelly didn't tell you that one. Nope. Um, she probably told you that I gave like an entire town C-bot, but that's a whole other story. Um, we'll save that for our episode two. <laughs> <laughs> 
But I used to, after school, make my dolls and everything. I would line them up and I had a little chalkboard and I'd make them go to school. And um, I went to Catholic school, so the nuns used to be able to, you know, like, point at you and rap on the knuckles. And so, you know, I had probably the most abused stuffed animal collection in America, <laughs> but, but they learned. <laughs> they were the smartest. They may have been the, the blackest and bluest, but they yeah. were definitely the smartest. <laughs> a little stuffing hanging out here or there. <laughs> I'll just tape it up. They'll be good. Right. That's what safety pins are for. It wasn't, I, there was, I I didn't get, I went to Catholic school for high school. There wasn't the wrap on the hands and the, Mm -hmm. pretty much any of that stuff was gone, but I heard the the horror stories of the, the chest shot. I went to Xavier all boys school. Oh, did you? And back in the day, all boys Catholic high school, um, back in the day, if, you know, you were being an idiot in the hallways, it was a nice shot to the sternum by one of the, the teachers that set you back online, so. Oh, yeah. I didn't do that to my stuffed animals, though. Well, um, that's another story. You're right. That is another story for another day. Because <laughs> <laughs> I won't, then I won't have to tell you about when my grandfather had to send my doll back. But <laughs> <laughs> we'll, get back we'll get back on track here. Oh, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, you're good. So four years at the University of Maryland. Mm-hmm. And then you move on to Emory University. Uh-huh. And how many years did I, so you have a master's degree and a PhD from Emory University. How many years were you at Emory for? Okay, I had, I have two masters. Two masters. Emory, and I was there all total, it was seven years, but I took off some time between the last master's and finishing writing my doctorate, which my, my dissertation, which was, um, that's another story. But I ended up writing two. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Uh, there was a glitch when I was writing the first one. And I really felt like, oh, I don't know if I can do this again. But I had a great advisor. I had a really wonderful um, committee. And I got back on track. And it was really because I was going through some old things of one of my great aunts. And a lot of the organizations and the women I was studying I didn't know she was a part of all that. And I'm going, yeah, this is primary son. And then it was like, wow, what? And then my older cousin started showing me pictures. And, and then it just took on a whole other life and I was revived. But man, there was a time when it just felt like, I don't think this is going to work. So two, two dissertations you wrote. Yeah. You're, I, you're uh, uh, like superhuman. No, I'm, I'm super, probably stupid, but anyway. <laughs> But there's a point again where it's like, okay, it's really hard, but I have to do it. Yeah. I don't want to say I gave up. And it's something my mom always told me. She said, like, I, especially at the end of a semester, I think she really just wanted to move to Alaska because I would go moping around. I got 10 papers. And she goes, okay, you know what? The day is going to come anyway. Either you're ready or you're not. Like, you know, <laughs> so you might as well use your time wisely and do it. Moping around the house and complaining is not using it wisely. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, she's like, you're not going to stop the day from coming. So, you know. <laughs> so that, I even tell my students that now because after she said it, I was like, yeah, she's kind of right. Yeah. <laughs> Once again, that's jot number three for the, the adults or the parents or the teachers. Yeah, so they're, yeah. they're up three to nothing right now. <laughs> well, 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 we'll flip the score. Don't worry. <laughs> oh, we will. <laughs> what... When did you know when you, uh, that you, after graduating from Maryland, that you wanted to continue your education? Was that a no-brainer? Was it something you knew early on? Uh, did you have thoughts about going into your professional career right out of your first four years of college? Um, no, I think it was a given. Um, I, most of the people in my family do have, you know, at least one other degree. Okay. So I thought growing up that that's what I was supposed to do. Honestly, I, I totally didn't know that you didn't have to go to college. Um, I didn't know, you know, really, you know, and even in college, it was like, wow, yeah, why stop at a bachelor's? I mean, like, what's that about? That's, we're still really young and, you know, and there's so much to learn and I want to be like certain people and that means I need to stay in school. And so in many ways, it was probably like already programmed. Um, and, And my parents were saying, you know, yeah, keep going, you know, so 
I never had that go get a real job uh, because I think they knew that that was my real job. Yep. Yep. <laughs> so you, yeah, you didn't stay for you know seven years for par the party life. It was to yeah. to get the education. Yeah. Yeah, and all the cool people I met in between, and just you know, it was like. Um, I don't know if you know Auntie Maine, the, the story Maine, but you know, she's saying that life is, is a buffet and most poor bastards are starving to death. And I love that. And that's how I feel, you know. Like, <laughs> there's all this out here. Come on, you know, don't just stay with the grapes, you know. <laughs> I'm a lobster, you know? <laughs> there's a little octopus over there. Come on, you know, do it. <laughs> I might borrow I might have to borrow that quote. That's that's a good yeah. one too. You're two it's for two on quotes too. Come on. Hey, I know. <laughs> so you studied U.S. history and African-American literature for your two master's degrees. Mm -hmm. And for your Ph.D., it was U.S. history and African-American literature as well. And women's history. And so women's history. African-American, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. What, was the, what was the inspiration to, to choose that as your, your focus for your studies? Well, when I started writing the second one, I, there was a woman I was really, really sort of enamored with named Daisy Lampkin. And she took um, the Pittsburgh chapter of the NAACP and just turned it around. It was one of the most dynamic things right um, during the time of Jim Crow. Yeah. It was also right before Brown versus Board. So she was going into places that did not welcome her. And she was, I mean, a phenomenal figure. She also belonged to different organizations. And so when I had my little hiccup with the first part of the dissertation. Yeah. And I found that family here was already like working in those places. And I did not know, which was kind of crazy. But one of my advisors said, you know, there's all these great studies on women's activism in Chicago, in New York, in this, but New Haven has always been kind of a hotbed of activity. And I thought about it, I'm thinking, yeah, you know, Amistad and <laughs> the Panther Trials. And well, yeah, there's, you know, New Haven has been kind of core and central to these things. So she said, a lot of people are going to be looking for, you know, like a New Haven study. And so I didn't, as I said, I know I had all this primary research already with me, you know. And then um, my mom and my dad reached out to some of the older people because my grandparents were deceased at that point but some of their contemporaries and then some of, um, as I said, some of my deceased family members, and then those who were alive who worked with my grandmother or worked with my grandfather or even worked with my parents as young people. And, and so they were just excited and anxious. They said, nobody ever asked us. And I'm just going, are you kidding me? <laughs> so when I was doing this research, I was at the Yale Library quite a bit and they asked me, if, um, well, first of all, I got all these wonderful privileges and they only asked me for a copy of the dissertation because I was wow. seeing documents and things that nobody really touched. And um, so I was going you know, through city administration and all kinds of things, the school board, and just, I was trying to weave, you know, this larger tale about um, activism between the 19th and 20th centuries. And then the hardest part was the women I had to interview were like in their 80s and 90s. Yep. And they were busy. And I was trying to, you know, run with them and, you know, go to this thing with them. And I you was know, like, well, you know, I've got five minutes if you want to, you know, hit me at church or we can talk for, you know, so yeah, you talk about, I was moving. Piecing it together, right? Little yeah. bits at a time. Yeah. I was like, these people are in their 90s and they are like driving around and walking. I said, this is, whoa, okay. <laughs> no gym membership needed, right? You said to None. track them down and keep up with them. Right. And you, you can see how that generation did not really have an obesity problem. They, no. you know, they, they ate well and they worked hard. So, yep. you know, yeah. It's amazing what that, those two simple concepts will do. I know. I yeah. work hard, but I eat way too much. Well, <laughs> well clearly I eat potato chips. <laughs> Always double check the number of items <laughs> in your shopping cart when you're online shopping. We'll yes. leave it at that. <laughs> Especially Please. when you're ordering potato chips. Anyway, we'll leave it at that. <laughs> you're, you're working on a manuscript. 
right now as we speak as well. Tell us a little bit about that, Lisa. Well, there was an African-American doctor who was um, the second graduate of Yale. And one of the things that as an historian, I try to do is correct things. I have yet to be able to correct the, when you Google this man's name, Dr. Um, Cortland Van, Van Rensselaer Creed, um, a picture of, of Anthony Boger comes up. You're like, ah, oh, wrong guy. But he was interesting because he was a, um, a field surgeon during the Civil War. Okay. And he practiced at Yale. And he also ended up um, having his own practice that he had black and white patients. He had an apothecary, which wow. um, I've kind of retraced some things. But right where Worcester Square is, that's where his apothecary would have been. And further up was where his office was. But right now it's a um, parking lot. Okay. Um, but um, he was one of the surgeons who was called in after President Garfield was assassinated. And they wanted him to autopsy the body, you know, to see, wow. you know, what, but it, it kind of comes around um, two murders. Two young women were murdered about 20 years apart in, in the New Haven area. And, you know, he was kind of pivotal in investigating those things. And so I was like, well, why don't I ever, why don't I know about this man? You know, who is he? So it really started with me turning my dissertation into a book. And I got to the reconstruction era and I started seeing things about Dr. Creed. I'm like, who? And so it just got to be one of those things where like, so I kind of set aside what I was doing and just, you know, literally dove into doing all these things and finding his grave and doing, I mean, I, and in fact, I dragged my dad to the cemetery before church one day um, to find him. But anyway, um, <laughs> <laughs> but what's really interesting is as I was researching, I saw this, I saw his name up on Facebook. I'm going, okay, that's a little creepy. Um, yeah. <laughs> and it ends up that his great great grandson, who is an Italian, started this webpage. And so we started communicating. And the irony is that my brother went to school with his sister. I mean, it's just been Come like on. this weird, like, oh, okay. So. <laughs> So that's, that's what I'm doing. And I'm just excited. I'm trying to finish those last two chapters. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What, and not, and not to put any pressure on, but the, and I, I haven't never written a manuscript. The last two chapters, are we looking at something that would be a finished product within a year or two years? I hope within the year, it should have been done um, really almost two years ago, okay. but life got in the way. <laughs> As it does, as yeah, it does. It really got in the way. And so, yeah, I'm hoping within a year, because I also have a research assistant who attends St. John's College in Annapolis, Maryland. Oh, wow. So he's been very helpful. Yep. He's been very helpful. So let's, you know, cross fingers. And when I found um, Dr. Creed's, um, he has like a little obelisk, actually. It's in Grove Street Cemetery. Huh. And I... I, I don't know whether everybody else thinks this, but they're the th first three graves you see are Dr. Creed, um, Jedihah Ashman, Ashman Street, and um, and the Amistad, those who you know passed on before yep. they returned to. And I said, this is Black history right here. The first three things that you see in Grove Street Cemetery. And, you know, and so I, I'm kind of writing that that led me to a whole nother <laughs> avenue. So with me, it's it's sort of like the rabbit hole syndrome. I mean, I have to cut it off at some point, <laughs> but I still have to go down there and find it. You know, That's right. like, yeah, if something bites me, it's like, okay, I guess let me go back. <laughs> how do people, how do people stay, like, uh, figure out when the manuscript is done? And is there a way for people to kind of track down past projects, future projects? This is a shameless plug opportunity. It is shameless plug. I, I'm not good at that, but sure. Just let me know. Well, I seriously, will. we'll get it on our website because I think oh. that's it's 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 great for people to. I, I, I'm having trouble speaking to it because I'm not I'm not a big history person. It's okay. You could be a little one. I'm a sport history person, <laughs> which is so Ooh, insi yeah. but insignificant. <laughs> no, I love sports history. Um, oh gosh. I don't know if you saw on Jeopardy a a question was asked uh, who was the first person in the major league major league baseball well, who was the person who broke the color barrier in major league baseball and the answer I think that was given was Babe Ruth. <laughs> which is incorrect. Oh boy, yeah. And 
So I guess parts of sports history is very significant, right? That one should have been answered correctly. I don't yeah. care if you know nothing about sports. But. And there was a movie, even if you don't read. <laughs> <laughs> These people. <laughs> Kelly and I, we picked each other jaws up off of the dinner table and it looked just, you know, in they awe were. that that was. And, and he died in Stanford. I mean, I'm just saying, come on, like no excuse. Seriously, no excuse, people. <laughs> bad. Yes, yes, very bad. But no, we'll definitely, well, when we get this up on our website, I want to make sure if someone wants to track down and has a, a an interest and a passion for the topics that you do and that you're studying and writing about, we should make sure they have a way to find them. Well, thank you. That's you're so very welcome. You. <laughs> you are, so you're a life lifelong educator. Yeah. Was there a specific person or a, a, a what, a situation that inspired you to, because it's, yeah, basically you spent some time in at a school in Fairfax, spent a bunch of time at the the college level at Elizabeth City University, or Elizabeth City State University mm-hmm. and Tuskegee University. Mm-hmm. Why, why, why education? Good question. I, I think that especially in grad school, all of the people who taught me, I really admired them. And um, one person in particular, well, two people in particular, Evelyn Brooks Higginbotham and Betsy Fox Genovese, they were just dynamic women and they were smart and they seemed to really get a sense of the world. So they didn't pigeonhole themselves and they pushed their students to do things. And I always liked that about myself. But I was wondering, is there a way to kind of get me in a situation where I can do that with others? And I just didn't see that being a nine to five. No. I've never really been a good nine to five or I've done it, but it's not my comfort zone because I always want to do more, you know, and, um, and my sister made a joke once because I had this nine to five. She says, you're not a nine to five person. <laughs> you realize that, right? <laughs> I'm like, well... No, but let's just see how it goes. And so I turned it into something that was very different. Um, so you know, that's, that's the other part of it. It's, it's never quite the same job, you know, when I take it over. It's like, okay. yeah. yeah, I'm kind of known for that. It's, it, I, I try to do things like everybody else, but there's always sort of like this sort of Lisa-ism that, you know, moves it in another direction and it just becomes different. I'm, I'm okay with that. My grandmother did tell me I was an odd duck and to embrace it. So <laughs> another great bit of wisdom right there. Yeah. Yeah. And she was a real adult. Yeah. <laughs> Not a fake adult. She's a real adult. <laughs> You're an odd but, duck. Embrace it. I love that. That's yeah. great. But because they were scholars and I loved reading, I just thought, yeah, I've got to do this. And um, because I was trained, you know, at, at a pretty high level, I was automatically in universities, even at Emory, they use their grad students. And so my first class, and I think I was maybe a year older than my oldest student. Oh, wow. So, yeah. And, and I looked, I really looked 10. So people <laughs> were kind of like, you're really going to be the teacher, that kind of thing. So, you know, obviously, I don't look 10 anymore. But at the time, it was kind of fun. Um, I had this long ponytail and I was sitting around with everybody like, yeah, when's she coming, you know, but anyway, I, I really, totally, totally freaked them out. Um, and so each job just kind of was at that level. It, it was Flint Hill prep school, the first time I ever even thought about secondary, but it was a real college prep. And I was told, you, know, you can teach the way you teach your freshmen. This is what we want. And we want you to do AP and all. So I was able to really kind of not have to break my stride too much, um, you know, going between the two. So that, the That's a great question. I was going to ask you about that, the difference at teaching at the, the college university level versus the secondary level. Is, did, you fi- did you find it a, a challenge for you to make that transition? Um, not really, but I'll tell you the first probably two weeks, I didn't realize how tired I could be. I did a lot at the university level, but to be in one building and, you know, that was, that was my, my biggest, um, you know, difficulty in transitioning. It wasn't the teaching. It was, oh my gosh, you mean you're still here? You're like, what do you mean? <laughs> we have to go to that cafeteria? You know, so, like, oh. so, you know, once I got used to the fact that, yes, we're all kind of happy and together for a while, 
it was okay, but I was exhausted. And I told my husband, I was like, you know what? I don't know how these teachers do it. Woo, I can't wait to get back to the college level. And then I found that I really did not like teaching my undergraduates, but I love my graduate students. Okay. And then I found I really loved my secondary students. So for a while, I cut out the, the undergrads. Under- I only taught <laughs> like juniors and seniors in high school and grad students. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so the 18 to 22 year olds I was like over them and, and then at some point I realized I liked them again but yeah for a while I was just not even yeah oh man did, did you know early on like was it before you went to Mar- uh, University of Maryland at, while you were at University of Maryland that this is probably the route that I want to go for my profession I want to be in education I think it was always in the back of my mind and it, it seemed like everything I was doing was leading toward that. So I'm not sure that I was really conscious of it for at, at first, but I was still kind of, you know, finding my way through that and wanting to learn more and more. And to me, part of learning is teaching. Yep. It seems like, you know, so maybe I ought to also express some of this and share it with people and before i was born my dad was a teacher in the new haven um school system oh wow before he went into um into um private into the private sector but he so i'm thinking and my mom actually at one point was my art teacher um for a little while because i actually signed her up without her knowing and um Yeah, well, my parents always said, if you need us, we're there. So for some reason, our art teacher quit, like, you know, and the, I, the people were going crazy, what are we going to do? And I said, oh, my mom will teach. So they called my mom before I got home. Oh, no. And then and she said, how was your day? Are usual? I was like, oh, I'm fine. And she goes, anything you want to tell me? I'm like, no. Says you don't want to tell me that'll be your art teacher starting tomorrow. It's like, oh yeah, yeah, oh that, you know, yeah. It's a big deal. Yeah, like don't embarrass me though, okay? Because <laughs> you know, <laughs> don't sully my reputation. What grade? What grade were you in when this happened? <laughs> I think it was fourth. Oh, that's fantastic. Fourth or fifth? Oh my gosh. That's fantastic. Yeah, that was kind of a. And I said, you said that you all were there for us. And she says, yeah, I did. You know, like, like I guess she was like, like. <laughs> but there were necessary steps to help to get me there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, volunteer your parents. That's, that was when the kid, ha, huh, one for the kid. <laughs> there you go. Okay, they, it's, it's three to one now, three to one. <laughs> We're, we're going to, I think this is another opportunity to, to even up the score here a little bit. Yay. I hear a lot of, coaches teachers and there's you find it on on, in articles online all the time or in magazines about how the kids have changed how the students have changed how the athletes have changed and they don't work as hard but all that stuff and i'm not necessarily you know a believer in that maybe like the the students have changed but i I do think there's some environmental and circumstances around them that change Mm -hmm. what in in working with the the high school students that you work with at Hamden Hall right now, what do you see in them that inspires you for their future and for our, I think, collective future? I like they are able to put down, well, I make them put down the phone, but let's put it that way because, and I mean, and to be honest, we've given them these tools. So then we say, but they're wrong. Yeah, you didn't have to give it to them either. There's that, right? And the adults are, and I'm, we're, we're guilty as charged. Yeah, too, exactly. You know? <laughs> so, you know, all the kids, and I can say, yes, um, students have changed because circumstances have changed. I, I think you could take the same students and put them in the fifties and they would do what the students in the fifties did, yep. you know, but it is about that environment that you were discussing. And what makes me want to teach them is to get them to reach out of that. Um, we are all you know, I'm guilty with my, you know, 20 bags of, um, of potato chips that came in a day. Um, we're all so, you know, guilty of, of wanting things now. And we're used to it. And I want them to understand everything doesn't happen overnight. You can't always press send. And then, you know, the UPS guy is standing at your door. 
So it's, that's not how the world really works. And that's not definitely not how history works. Yeah. You know, this, a lot of what we can study in a semester took thousands of years to accomplish, you know? So, yeah. yeah. So that idea of sort of compressing everything, I want them to, to open it up and to think about it and to analyze. I, I want really them, to, I want them to be thinkers. Now, if they remember the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, I will be so happy, but if they don't, and they know that this country was in different skirmishes and acquired different territories. That to me is important and why it happened. Yep. You don't have to know every signatory on that particular document, you know, and you don't have to know all of the treaties of Versailles and all the treaties of Paris, because clearly that's the only place people ever met, um, you know, <laughs> to sign treaties. Um, so. <laughs> but it is to get them to reach outside of themselves. And I try to pull that. I try to do that. And do you see as, as you're, cause again, maybe it's not natural right now, but you're teaching them to have that mindset. Do you see glimpses of like, wow, they're, they, you know, when they do venture out of that, do you see glimpses that just, you know, make, maybe make you give that like internal fist pump to yes. say, yeah, they got it. They can yeah. do it. Yeah. Yes. It, yeah. And that is, so gratifying. And even, you know, after class, I've gotten some emails sometimes. Someone says, I was traveling. Um, one, one young lady said, I went to the Atlanta airport and they had Dr. King's suit on display. And I was so excited. And I was telling my parents, you know, and so if they can do things like that and make connections, I, I just, to me, then, you know, I've done my job. I, <laughs> I love it. You know, I absolutely love it. Um, you know, so I, I want them to understand that they can see Ford's theater, for instance, and yeah, it's a nice building and yeah, there are things, but what happened there? You yeah. know what I mean? Just yeah. so that they have a sense that they're connected as well, because of course, everybody thinks that history started the day he or she was born. I mean, yeah. it makes sense, no. right? Yeah. yeah, there was nothing before me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what you all did all this time. <laughs> <laughs> But it started becoming interesting on this date when exactly. I came around. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, obviously, you know, a bunch of time at the at the college level as a student, teaching at the college university level, uh, teaching at the secondary level, mm -hmm. and and for doing it well, doing it for a long period of time. So there's in my opinion, there is a, a level of great leadership involved in uh, everything that you do on a daily basis, right? Oh, you, you thank know. you. Um, <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spin it back on you. So we, when we define leadership with student groups that we work with, we define it in three levels, right? So there's the, the first level is leadership of self. Mm. So kind of the internal mechanisms that a, that a person has to push through challenge, adversity, to, you know, set a goal and a course for achievement, um, you know, that type of mentality, the, the grit, perseverance. And then there's the second level is leading, leading others. So, um, you know, bringing the best out of students or teammates, uh, helping them, you know, bond together for the achievement of a shared goal. Mm -hmm. what, and we'll get into level three at the end of this thing. Leadership of self and leadership of other people. Mm -hmm if you had to sum it up in maybe a couple sentences, how have those elements like been present in your time as, you know, as a student, as, and as a professional uh, in, in education? Oh, they've definitely been present. Um, okay. Let me put it this way. I always knew that if I didn't push myself to do things, there's no way I can convince anybody else to do it. Yep. <laughs> and that kind of goes back to literally self-love. You've got to believe in yourself. And there are times, of course, when I feel, you know, that I don't love myself because everybody does. But what I find is that the times I don't feel very um, empowered, self-empowered, yep. I try to look at someone who may be feeling even worse than I and do something for that person. And that lifts it out. And so to me, that kind of is both of them, you know, you have it and then you can kind of transfer it to someone else, paying it forward. Yep. And I think that that's really, really important because how are you going to, you know, people call it buy-in in the corporate world, but you know, if, how are you going to get people to buy into something if, you know, you're just essentially just kind of mouthing the words and, you know, humming along and act like you're not part of it. Yep. Um, 
And so I do believe that people can see through you. I mean, they're good actors, but there's a point when, you know, reality does set in. And unfortunately, you know, it sets in sometimes at the most um, inappropriate moments. (laughs) And so, and I figure, I'll I'll be honest with you, if if I'm angry, and I think it's better to go ahead and cry and scream and do whatever it is then, instead of trying to hold everything in and making everything look so wonderful. I mean, sometimes we have to, but you need to express it because again, it'll come out at, at a time when it's probably not the best. Yep, agree. And having spent some time in my classroom was different. I was in a gym, Mm -hmm. which was much more fun than a history classroom. No offense. Joking, 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 joking. No, no, we we use ropes and and, and chains and things. (laughs) And balls. (laughs) But what one of the things, and looking back on my time as a student, and then the time I spent teaching Mm -hmm. your students regardless of their age are intelligent and they will sift through bs pretty quickly Mm -hmm. right if you're putting on that front if you're faking being happy and -hmm. you're really not or they they read right through that and your chance of the the quote-unquote buy-in or your chance to make real connections and your ability to push them to maybe you know separate from their phone and try, you know, try that new, new style of, of learning. Mm-hmm. It's out the window at that point. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you don't establish sort of that, you're the student, I'm the teacher immediately, you lose a moment. And, and the same thing happens with them. I mean, I can see through them as well. So yep. I think that's kind of, you know, interesting, maybe, um, maybe better than they can see through me, but, <laughs> but, you know, there are times when you have to just kind of, you know, as they say, gird your loins and, and power through it. Yep. Um, especially if I think that students would suffer from, you know, if I'm having a bad day or something like that, that again comes from that. Okay. I want them to be okay. So I can, I'm the adult. I can kind of do this. Yep. They, they don't have those tools yet, so I need to model. And the minute that last kid goes and I close the door, then I start, you know, throwing the balls and things around. And, you know, nobody sees it. <laughs> Pull the shade down on the door window, right? And <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yep, I'm telling you, that stuffed giraffe goes, woo, plus the room, poor thing. Yeah. So that's the key to the listeners out there. If you're in the classroom and you need a stress reliever, it's got the, the stuffed giraffe works great. It does. It does. <laughs> it's, a, it's like a good long-handled implement, like a tennis racket. It's, it's it, actually this stuffed animal a kid gave me years ago, and I just throw him across <laughs> the room. I mean, he's missing all kinds of things from his mane and all, but anyway. And which takes us back stops. to Lisa's <laughs> childhood as the pretend teacher with her stuffed animals. That, exactly. That if you're a stuffed animal around Lisa, look out. All right? I know. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's probably good advice. <laughs> oh goodness! So we're not in any sort of normal right now, Mm-mm. and God willing, we'll be back to some semblance of normal for the fall, right mm-hmm. for the start of the new school year. What are you personally looking forward to the most? Come late August, early September, when you're back with the students and you're the faculty and staff and, and the, the, the family at Hamden Hall? Seeing them first, that's just to literally see them and not have to maybe, maybe we would be six foot apart, I don't know. But <laughs> just to know that I'm not in a confined space and that no one can come near me. Yep. So that is, it, I, I love people, I love being, and I'm fairly outgoing. And so for me, you know, it's going to be like, you know, the big linebacker room, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know I, <laughs> I might pull a Howie along or something, I don't know. <laughs> but I think it's going to be just seeing, you know, the expressions and just hearing it. And it's the sounds. It's, it's sort of that, um, just sort of the rhythm of the day uh, and having 
a sense that time is moving on, but it's not just the same thing all the time. You know, I feel like I'm in Groundhog Day right now. And I'm, you know, one day I'm hoping to know what real day it is. So, you know, <laughs> and that's what I'm looking forward to. Yeah. Calendar that means something. Yeah. Agree. <laughs> yeah. And judge it by the, well, okay, I have this conference call on this day. So I know it's, yeah. that's Monday and yeah survivors on tonight so that's wednesday and then from there i just like process process of elimination exactly (laughs) yeah but seeing my students hearing them watching how they've grown i mean you know just all the little things that you take for granted and you know and i really do love my kids a lot and so yeah it's uh it's probably not going to be a lot of dry eyes on that first one I'm guessing not. I'm, I'm guessing not. Maybe dry ice, but maybe no dry <laughs> eyes. <laughs> what? So we, we talked a lot about throughout this conversation about experiences, right? And, and you just mentioned recently, like, if I'm having a rough day, I'm going to fight through it because I've had these experiences. The students haven't had them yet. This is this is something that not, we didn't go through as students, right? We, um, a, a pandemic, I don't, I don't think. I, I, at least I haven't. I can't speak for you. No, and I, I'm not 100, so I, I missed the Spanish Yeah, so you're good. Okay. Pandemic in 1918, 1919. Check, I'm a little older than you, list. but not that much. <laughs> <laughs> so oh, I can't speak for Shots it. fired. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what, and, and I know there's people out there that are, have it much worse than you and I do right now, right? There's the people on the front lines, the, the people that have the essential services that oh, yeah. are doing hero's work right now, for sure. But I do think that there can be some positives from this very difficult situation, right? For, mm-hmm. for people and, you know, teachers learning how to teach in a different way, right? Mm-hmm. And use technology differently, maybe is a positive. What do you hope your students are able, and it doesn't have to be an academic thing, it could be like a life skill type thing. Yeah. What do you hope your students are able to take from this experience that, that is not, you know, not a negative, right? Something that could maybe they can yeah. carry with them down the road and apply to their life as it goes on. Uh, that they can adapt. You know, that one, life is unpredictable. Nobody saw this coming. No. And they're young and they've had to make changes and um and that they can't control everything and that's okay so if you can figure out a way to kind of i know it gets repetitive i know it gets boring but the fact is you're able to survive it that they'll know they can take that and say whoa look i I lived through the pandemic and you know i'm still speaking to myself and so (laughs) now i might not be but they probably (laughs) because i'm getting on my own nerves but anyway um, But that they understand that they are really made, as as Shakespeare would say, of sterner stuff. Yeah, that's great. I, I love it. And every person I've talked to on this podcast has said something similar, that this is something that they can look back on when they're 50, 60 years old to say, yeah, whatever's in front of me right now, it's not as bad as I think it is. And, and I'm going to get through it because of you know, what I, what I was able to get through back in the late winter, early spring of 2020. Yes. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> I know that even like, you know, caps Momageddon. So. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> My last question for you, Dr. Hill, mm-hmm. you've done a wonderful job. This is, this has been great so far. Thank you. So pressure's on. Don't mess it up on the last question. I'm joking. Okay, well, uh, <laughs> just throw a bag of chips <laughs> Leadership of self is level one. Leadership of other people is level two. The, in our, when we teach it, the third level is, is often forgotten. It is the leadership legacy. So you know, what a person leaves with a, a group of people or, or a building when they move on from that or when, you know, the students move on from having a teacher. What part of Dr. Lisa Hill do you hope to leave with your students when they move on from Hamden Hall Country Day School? Believe in themselves. Love it. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I won't even charge for that one. Nope. <laughs> Just dropping, dropping nuggets of wisdom throughout this hour-long phone call. 
but in all, in all seriousness, Lisa, absolute pleasure. Thank you for, Thank you. I hope this was a nice break from distance learning and everything. It's, it was great for me. It was great to see you. It's a great, been a great part of the day, the best part of the day so far, which is nice. Oh, same here. Thank you. <laughs> oh, you're very welcome. And listeners, thank you for tuning in and again, be safe. Be nice to your family members that you're sharing a home with because you're probably annoying them as much as they're annoying you. Be friendly with each other, uh, but most importantly, be safe. And that wraps up our episode of Dr. Lisa Beth Hill leads with Empower. Lisa, thank you again. You did a great thank job. You. You're very welcome. Listeners, we'll check you out next Tuesday for the next episode. Be safe. Talk to you soon. Thank you so much to our listeners. We appreciate you tuning in. And always remember, great leadership looks, sounds, and feels different. However, there is a common thread that connects all tremendous leaders. They are passionate about those that they lead, and they spend most of their time in their stretch zone. Not settling for that which is comfortable, because nothing exceptional was ever accomplished from comfort. Mm -hmm.